Welcome back to the Foul Balls podcast for NFL Week 2. I'm not going to try to sing the NFL theme song last week because Matt didn't seem to enjoy that. So it was okay. we'll just move on. Uh, less, less intro this week. It should be a little shorter because we don't have to go through all the, all the intro type stuff about football we did last week. We'll just go right into the games. So first game we'll start with is the Philadelphia Eagles at the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, Matt, what does the Vegas data say about this game? Uh, it's definitely clear that the public likes the Chiefs a lot, which is very unsurprising after they just beat the Patriots by, what was it, 15 points at New England. Uh, so the public is on the Chiefs. There doesn't seem to be much of a sharp indicator yet, but I would imagine that um, it does come on the Eagles at some point. These teams are pretty even. Uh, I think we were looking at the projections for Pro Football Focus, Football Outsiders, Massey Peabody earlier in the week, and the consensus was that the Chiefs should be favored by about a field goal. Um, it does look like it should be a reasonably high-scoring game, but I think that we're, what we're looking at here is just two pretty good teams that are evenly matched. The Chiefs get the bonus for home field advantage, but uh, I think there's a lot of potential for fantasy production because uh, there's some pretty good offensive players on both sides, but uh, overall this is a pretty even game. Yeah, I think it's a game. I don't have a ton of interest in the Eagles side of it. Uh, I liked the Eagles last week just because Carson Wentz was cheap, and I'm not a huge fan of the Redskins' defense. The differences for this game is just the Chiefs have a really good defense and a really good secondary, so that kind of has me off Carson well, Wentz a little bit. How do you account um, for um, Eric Berry's injury? Because I'm not fully aware of how good he is at this stage of his career. Yeah, so Eric Berry is one of the best defensive players in the NFL, so that does make a big difference. But still, with that said, the Chiefs are also a team that plays at one of the slower paces in football. So that tends to limit the amount of points that are scored in the games. Uh, so Football Outsiders has the Chiefs winning this game 22-20, to 20, so a pretty low-scoring game. Where I have the most interest in this game is going to be on uh, on Kareem Hunt. And I know that everybody's going to want to roster Hunt because he was ridiculous against the Patriots. He scored two touchdowns. I think he finished with like 190 total yards or something ridiculous like that. So I understand his ownership is going to be really high. But with that said, he's at 6,800. He's either the eighth or ninth most expensive running back on the slate. And I think that's so much closer to what the floor is for his production this year than his ceiling. So for that reason, I think Hunt at 6,800, like I think later on in the season, he's going to be somebody who's priced like in the eight to 9,000 range. And we're going to look back and just be like, how is he priced in the mid 6,000 range in week two? And it's just seem ridiculous to not play him if you fade him here. Uh, I'm not saying that like he's like an all-in player or anything like that, but he's definitely going to be one of my favorite running back plays on the slate. So for that reason, I think uh, Hunt is the guy who have a lot of interest in. I know that some people like Tyree Kill, he had a really big game. I, I'm just not totally sold on Tyree Kill because he's so reliant on the big plays happening. And I know that he has done that a lot. I think it's now seven games in a row that he scored a touchdown of at least 50 yards, which is ridiculous. But I just wonder if somebody who doesn't get a ton of touches in general like, how sustainable is it for somebody to continually get 50-yard touchdowns, even if he's been doing it every week? I just don't totally buy it. Do you think that logic makes sense, Matt? Or do you think that there's a point in time where if somebody just keeps scoring 50-plus-yard touchdowns, that you just have to assume that that is the norm for that player? Um, I guess it would depend on matchups a lot, because I think there's a ton of variance with the way defenses play in football, especially in terms of their secondary, where it's literally different schemes, different... Um, I mean, not every team plays man, not every team plays zone, and then the zones vary pretty greatly uh so maybe there's some sort of randomness here where just the stretch has had to do with good matchups i really i honestly don't know um i wanted to comment on the cream hunt thing though because i was looking at his status as a prospect and um football outsiders has this metric called speed score where it's literally just uh 40 time divided by weight and Kareem Hunt graded out really poorly here because even though he's one of the heavier running backs he ran a pretty bad 40 time i think it was a 462 um, so I, I won't use that to say he's definitely not an elite running back, but I think it's at, it's at the very least a negative indicator. Um, and I do think he's going to have a ton of ownership. So I'd be a little bit cautious here about rostering him too much, but um, it's clear that the Chiefs are going to use him a lot. He's going to be a really integral part of the offense for, I guess, the foreseeable future. Um, it's, I just thought one thing to point out there is that he may not be quite as talented as people think he is, even if he is really insanely talented. Yeah, like, I'm not saying that I think that he's, like, Le'Veon Bell or David Johnston or that good. Uh, I'm just saying that, that I think that there's a good chance that he's going to be almost as good as those guys this year. And 
I, I just think that his stock is, I think his price is definitely a lot more likely to be higher than it is right now than lower. Oh yeah, I would say he's certainly underpriced. Uh, just the ownership could be a concern, but um, at least for cash games, he makes a ton of sense for GPPs. I guess we'll have to try to get a feel for how much people are going to use him, but I think at least some exposure to Kareem Hunt is certainly a way to go. Um, just figuring out how much might be hard. So we'll move on to the next game uh, listed here is the uh, Buffalo Bills with the Carolina Panthers. Matt, what does Vegas have to say about this one? Um, there's actually not much going on here. The spread bets favor Carolina a little bit. The money line bets favor Buffalo a little bit. Uh, the total, the spread for the game has been around seven uh, for just about the entire time it's been out. Uh, the total has gone up from 42 to 43, but that's with the public heavily betting the over. Um, I think that we're just looking at a pretty fairly priced game where the Panthers have a clear advantage and the Bills are maybe slightly overvalued, but it would only be a mild public bias here because the Bills look pretty good against the Jets. But in reality, the Bills did play really well against the Jets. Um, there's two ways to look at this. The Bills had a good game, and if you just look at the score, oh, the Bills won their week one game by nine points. That means that they're probably a good team. Uh, but then the other side of that is giving the Bills zero credit because, oh, they just beat the Jets. That's not worth anything. But we both think that the Jets are pretty underrated. I mean, we won't even go even close to as far as saying that they're even an average team. Uh, they're just way less bad than most people seem to think they are. Uh, so the Bills do deserve at least some credit for playing really well in week one. They had one of the strongest showings of any team in week one. So, I don't know, maybe those factors cancel each other out and the Bills actually are just an average team. Um, but, yeah, as far as the Vegas line, there's not much to look into here. Yeah, so my favorite targets from the Bills side of the game, I think that uh, Charles Clay is only 3,000. He had the most targets of any Bills receiver. And the other thing that was also really promising about his game was that he got uh, three red zone targets. So Charles Clay finished week one with something like 50 receiving yards and a touchdown him at only 3000. That's a really cheap price. He's probably going to be my favorite, uh, punt option for tight ends. So that's where I really uh, want my Buffalo exposure to LaShawn McCoy kind of always is a decent play, but not somebody I'm going to roster this week. Cause I think there's a lot of cheap running back plays that, uh, I think, I think that's going to be the way to go running back is to go a little cheaper. And I, I'm not going to spend up for McCoy at all. I'll have zero shares of him. So from the Carolina side of the game, Cam Newton looked awful in week one. Uh, I think a lot of people thought, myself included, that Newton was hurt for a lot of last year. He was going to come back and look better this season. And it just didn't really happen. He was inaccurate on a lot of his passes. I'm still going to roster him this week. I think this is a good spot. I think that the Bills, offense, uh, the Bills team as a whole is a little overvalued by most people right now because of that week one win. So I think Cam Newton's in play. Uh, Calvin Benjamin. I think that he's going to have a good year if Newton doesn't totally suck, which is possible because that's what it looked like could be in week one. But I'm going to give him the one more week. And the other thing also, uh, Christian McCaffrey. So Jonathan Stewart got more touches than McCaffrey in week one. But with that said, McCaffrey played 51 snaps to 29 snaps for Stewart. So with McCaffrey seeing the field a lot more, I'm expecting him to out-touch Stewart in this week. And also just the way that McCaffrey scores his fantasy points, really uh, PPR-friendly player because he's going to catch a lot of balls. Uh, Pro Football Focus has him at three catches, uh, three and a half catches for the week, five targets, and then also about 10 rushing attempts. So, I mean, if we get 15 to 20 touches for Christian McCaffrey, I think that he's a really good chance to produce value at a cheap price tag, only uh, 5,600. So he's one of my favorite cheap running back plays for the week. I don't really have much to weigh in on Cam Newton's ability because I think it's just really hard to gauge how good or bad he may be now based on week one, but McCaffrey's not that expensive. So I'm, I'm in agreement there. I just want the one thing that I want to throw back in there is that I don't actually think the bills are overvalued. I think there's some overvalued components and some undervalued components that are sort of what I think that they're washing each other out because uh, just the way the public betting looks, there's no line movement in the public split on this game. So I, I don't think that there's really any bias here on the bills. Yeah, I actually, I think more of the bias is anti Panthers. Like, yeah, that's I, I probably think, fair. I don't think anybody's going to roster Newton this week. Yeah, that, I think that would make sense because the Panthers, um, they definitely looked bad offensively in week one, even though they won pretty handily. Uh, so, yeah, there probably is some sort of anti-Panthers bias that is a little bit irrational. So the next game here is Cardinals-Colts. Obviously, the big injury information here, uh, David Johnson, uh, 
really unfortunate injury in week one. The most annoying part about NFL DFS is that like 50% of it is can you avoid the major injuries for the week, which I did not do with David Johnson for week one. Uh, I did okay in the first week of the season, but it certainly would have been a lot better had David Johnson not gotten hurt in that game. So David Johnson dislocated wrist. He's having uh, surgery and is expected to come back at the earliest, like week 16. I think he's probably going to be out for the full season. But I know there's some pretty interesting sharp movement on this line for uh, Arizona at Indianapolis, Matt. So what we had initially was actually some sharp indicators. I think there were some pretty big bets in Vegas on Arizona initially uh, because the lines come out, I think, Sunday afternoon when it's right around the middle of the 1 o'clock games, maybe right after they're over. You start to see lines released on the previous Sunday. So this might have been when David Johnson hadn't gotten hurt yet or probably for most people who made these big bets. Um, It was after Johnson was hurt, but it looked like he'd just be week to week and maybe he could even play this week. I think he was originally ruled as questionable. So once Johnson was officially ruled out, the sharp action completely switched to the other side onto the Colts. And uh, so the line had gone up from minus seven for Arizona up to seven and a half. Now it's back down to seven. And my initial reaction, uh, Greg and I actually talked about this uh, yesterday. My initial reaction was David Johnson's a running back and running backs tend to be dramatically overvalued by the public. And that's That's true in, I'd say, 98% of circumstances. When a running back is injured, usually the public overreacts to it because the running back, like we talked about last week, running back success is really predicated heavily on what the offensive line is doing. But there are some exceptions to this rule, and the exceptions are almost always running backs that are essentially the entirety of their team's offense. So we were looking at the DVOA metrics for David Johnson, and it turns out that he rated as a top 20 wide receiver last year or a top 20 receiving player in um, like per play efficiency. That definitely makes a huge difference. So even if David Johnson's value as a runner is overrated, his value as a receiver seems to be pretty underrated or at least fairly rated. So I don't think the public is reacting too much. I don't think the Sharps are reacting too much. I think that this is going to be a lot harder of a game for Arizona's offense without David Johnson because he may actually be the most impactful position player outside of quarterback uh, in the NFL. Yeah, so I think a lot of people are going to say, okay, so if David Johnson's out, he's a big part of the offense. Where is the running back production going to come from? Well, so last week, uh, Kerwin Williams got most of the snap, got most of the touches after David Johnson came out. But with that said, Kerwin Williams only played nine offensive snaps last week to Andre Ellington's 20. And then in addition, the Cardinals also signed Chris Johnson uh, to make up for David Johnson's injury. So we're looking at now Andre Ellington's probably going to play snaps. Kerwin Williams is probably going to play snaps. Chris Johnson's probably going to play snaps. It's really difficult to tell where the touches are going to go. So this is a situation where originally I thought there's going to be a lot of value here, and I don't think that at all anymore. I think it's going to be a three-way timeshare. Is it possible one of those guys has a really big game? Yes, of course it's possible, but I'm not going to try to chase it and hunt down which guys I think it's going to be. So this is a situation I'm just going to be fading. I think the value is going to come in the Cardinals' passing game. Carson Palmer, 6,000. That's pretty cheap. He was bad in week one, but I think he's going to have to throw the ball a ton. Larry Fitzgerald is uh, at 6,500. That's a reasonable price tag. And then John Brown at 5,000. I'm going to look at the targets right now, but I think that John Brown actually had either about the same or maybe even more targets than Larry Fitzgerald. I think, or it was, so Larry Fitzgerald, 13 targets to 12 for John Brown. So I think that Fitzgerald's going to be way higher owned. I think John Brown's a really good play here. I like him paired with Carson Palmer a lot. And then from the Colts side, there's just nobody to roster on this team. There's nobody I have any interest in. That's a very easy fade. Have the Colts announced a starting quarterback for this game yet? They have not. I, what they have said is that uh, Brissett and Tolzien are both going to take snaps in the in practice this week, and then they'll decide from there. So that's a good way to go. Uh, if you have two shitty quarterbacks, why not make sure that neither of them are prepared for the game <laughs> also? So that, that's, that's definitely going to be uh, a great situation for them. I'm sure people are going to want to use the Cardinals' defense. I would guess that their expected point outcome is higher than any other defense. But with that said, the way the defensive score points is really volatile. It kind of moves around a lot. It's tougher to predict. So at that I'd rather fade the Cardinals. I think they're probably usable in cashing, but for GPPs, I don't have a lot of interest in the Cardinals defense, and I'll look elsewhere. Yeah, I think there are two points that you made that, or two, I guess, picks that you've made that I wholeheartedly agree with that I think are 
two of the most important spots for the week. So John Brown being way lower owned than Fitzgerald makes a lot of sense. He's also cheaper, but the bigger one is definitely the Cardinals defense. And uh, I didn't mention this when looking at the initial line, but 81% of the public is on the under in this game and 78% of the spread bets are on Arizona. So based on that, the indication is that people love Arizona's defense for this game. Uh, the Sharps don't really have a take because they're just seeing the seven and a half points and saying that that's too high for the Colts at home. But based on what the, the betting on the total is, uh, most people are looking for this to be a low-scoring game. They defi There's definitely some bias because of how bad the Colts were in Week 1. So even if the Cardinals are the highest expected output for defense, there's no way that given what the ownership will probably be, that it makes sense to use them in GPPs. I mean, maybe for cash where you kind of want to align yourself with ownership, um, I think it might make some sense in cash. But GPPs, I think that I'm on board with you. They're an obvious fade. And then before we move to the next game, this is uh, just one thing I want to throw out there that people forget. I think a lot of times with DFS, but just in general, people forget how much home field advantage is worth in sports. And in football, you're talking about a six-point swing from home being the home team to being the away team. And essentially what that means is a team that would be like the fifth best team in the NFL drops to like the 25th best team because there's so much parity in the NFL. These teams are all so close. There's so much randomness that um, home field advantage makes a massive difference in the ability of these teams. So it definitely matters that the Colts get to play this game at home. They probably will look better. The Cardinals are going to have a tough time just because it's hard to go on the road and win football games and play well. Uh, so for all those reasons, I think you still can use Cardinals players. I think John Brown makes sense because he's going to be low owned, but the Cardinals defense, I think is just going to be insanely overvalued. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely how I feel about that game. Uh, obviously because I said it first and you agreed with me. So I'm agreeing <laughs> with you agreeing with what I, with what I said. Awesome. And I so agree with that too. <laughs> The, the next game is actually one of the games that I think is going to be the most fun to watch, and that's New England at New Orleans. Obviously, New England coming off that Week 1 loss against the Chiefs. That was one of the bigger upsets of Week 1, even though the Chiefs are a good team. I think just the general idea, and something I agree with, is that the Patriots are just better than any other team in the NFL, and people were just expecting to be some crazy juggernaut that was going to run through people this year. And they kind of got smashed in Week 1. They didn't look very good against the Chiefs. Tom Brady didn't play particularly well. I was surprised that there wasn't more articles predicting the downfall of Tom Brady. I guess <laughs> people have finally given up on that because I, I think each year for the last five years, Tom Brady is a bad game early in the season. and People say, is this the end of Tom Brady? And there was a surprisingly little amount of that because I think everybody's been burned by that prediction at some point. And they've just given up on making it. So with that said, uh, Patriots at Saints, this should be a very high-scoring game. Matt, what is the biggest total for this game, and is there any movement? Okay, so this game does have the highest total. It opened at 54.5. It's now up to 56. That's with most people betting the over. But even though most people are on the over, I think they're right to be there. I think both these teams should score a ton of points. I think one of the factors is Dante Hightower's injury. I think he's listed as doubtful right now. Uh, that definitely is going to hurt the Patriots' defense a lot. I'm not sure to the extent maybe you can weigh in on that. But Drew Brees also has some pretty dramatic home road splits in his career. And uh, the Patriots are just... As good as they are, I think that they're pretty clearly overvalued just because the whole narrative for the whole offseason is how great the Patriots are. And I think what's happened here is there's a bias that's set in where people are mixing up the idea that the Patriots are going to run away with their division with the idea that the Patriots are going to run away with the entire league. And part of the reason that the Patriots have such a high... Um, high line for Vegas in winning the Super Bowl, why their win total is so high, all that stuff is because their schedule is so easy because they play six games against some pretty bad teams in their own division. And then uh, they play the NFC South, which isn't very good. So they just have a really easy schedule. And I think people are getting a little carried away with how good this team is because of the schedule. But uh, it seems like the loss of Hightower will even further the divide of how good this team is versus what people think they are. Yeah, this is kind of a weird game in terms of Hightower because it definitely hurts their defense. He's the Patriots' best defensive player. But with that said, it hurts them way more in last week's game against the Chiefs because the Chiefs have guys like uh, Kareem Hunt who was able to catch a ton of passes that Hightower would otherwise be responsible for. Hightower is also the Patriots' best run defender. And for this game, the Saints have not much of a running game, so to speak, of and neither Adrian Peterson or Mark Ingram are huge threats in the passing game. So the loss of Hightower isn't going to hurt them as much in week two as it did in week one, but it's still a definite downgrade for their defense. 
the biggest thing to watch for for the Patriots right now is what's going to be the status of Danny Amendola. Because Amendola at 5,100, if he was to play, would be a really good value play to me at wide receiver. But if he's out, I think Chris Hogan becomes just a ridiculously good play. I think a lot of people are going to want to play Brandon Cooks. Brandon Cooks, 8,200. He's playing in New Orleans against his former team. So there's going to be that revenge narrative type mm-hmm. factor. I still think Cooks is a really good play just because of the expected point output in this game. But for the price, I think that Chris Hogan is going to be the Patriots wide receiver that I have the most exposure to if Danny Amendola isn't able to play. So I'm hoping that Amendola is out so that he, uh, so that we see more targets go towards Hogan. And then obviously Gronkowski at 6,900. He's always in play at tight end. This and seems like a game over. where you definitely want to stack these teams for cash, actually, I think would make some sense because the floor here, like this game is going to have points. If you use a bunch of players from this game, someone's going to score. I mean, the public is probably a little overweight on the over here, but it's not by, it's probably not by too much. I mean, Vegas set the initial line at 54 and a half. Maybe that's the fair number and 56 is slightly inflated, but this seems like the game with the, at it, pretty clearly the highest expected output and it's both teams that are very pass heavy. Um, so I think this probably will be one of the games that you stack. If I'm guessing, is this uh, a route you're going to go for both cash and GPP? You're going to stack both sides. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, one more thing I wanted to bring up that I forgot about is the Patriots running back situation. Mike Gillespie got all the goal line carries, but I think that he's, for me, he's a strong fade. I'm not going to have any exposure to him. In week one, Gillespie played 24 snaps to James White playing 43 snaps. So I think that James White makes some sense as a DraftKings PPR target in a stack with Brady because White is uh, the Patriots' best pass-catching running back. So from the Saints side of this game, I have no interest in the running game. Mark Ingram and Adrian Peterson split snaps and, split snaps and touches in week one. So I think that's a situation to avoid. And the Saints also just don't have a very strong running game in general. Drew Brees is obviously in play. And then from the Saints wide receivers point, I like Ted Ginn Jr. a lot in this game. Uh, Michael Thomas also in play. But I think Ginn at 4,800, he saw a bunch of targets in week one. I don't have it in front of me right now. But pro football focus, they have Thomas projected for nine targets and Ted Ginn projected for seven targets. Ginn also has a ton of big play potential. At only 4,800, I think that's a really good uh, pick for somebody who has potential to put, like, one of those long touchdowns on the board at a cheap price. Like, I see him as somebody who's really comparable to Tyree Kill in terms of output this week, but just for a cheaper price tag. So Ted Ginn makes a lot of sense as uh, as a player to use in a game stack. So I think he's going to be the guy who I have the most exposure to from the Saints side of this game. So the next game here is Tennessee at Jacksonville. Jacksonville's defense came out and just destroyed the Texans in week one to the point where the Texans had to like give up on that quarterback situation halfway through the first half of the game where they switched quarterbacks. And another big injury information from this game is for the Jaguars. Allen Robinson, he's their best receiver. He's one of the better receivers in football, tore his ACL, and is done for the entire season. So that's the big injury news here. Matt, what's the Vegas info for this game? The public loves the Titans here, and the Sharps love the Jaguars. And the projections that we look at, the three sources, I'll just list them again. It's uh, Pro Football Focus, Football Outsiders, and then Massey Peabody. Uh, they all have this game as virtually a pick em game with uh, the edge actually going slightly to Jacksonville. Uh, the line opened at pick em, and it's now uh, Titans minus two or two and a half. I think you'll probably actually see the Titans up to minus three because uh, this game is a really, really strong split with where most people are betting. Um, I guess the Titans are just a, a really highly hyped team for this season, and the Jaguars aren't. Um, but from looking at looking at the line movement and looking at where the total is at 43, it's down half a point from where it opened at 43.5. And, a half. and uh, the Jaguars' rate is one of the better defenses in football, especially against the pass. So I think this is a game that where, based on the, the Vegas line, it looks like uh, fade both sides because I think that it probably should be a pretty low-scoring game. Yeah, the one side that I am, the one player that I'm most interested in this game is going to be Leonard Fournette. So Fournette had a lot more touches than Chris Ivory. And let me see, how many carries did he end up with? He finished with, yeah, so in week one, Fournette had 26 carries for 100 yards, and then he also had three catches for 24 yards. 
So that's a lot of touches. Like, they were doing everything they could to feed him the ball. He was their first-round pick. They're going to want to get him touches. So if he's going to have that kind of workload, at only 6,500, I think that he makes for a really good pivot play off of uh, off of some of the other guys in his price range. So I think, like, like I would be fairly surprised if Kareem Hunt isn't the highest-owned running back on the slate. And I think that Fournette at 6,500 makes for the most... Uh, he, he makes the most sense as a pivot off of Kareem Hunt. I guess what people might not realize is that there's much more potential for the Jaguars to have a lead at the end of this game. So late game carries for Fournette aren't out of the question. I think most people see this as a game where the Titans should run away with it. And that could add a little value to Fournette where uh, most people just aren't planning for the Jaguars to be winning in the fourth quarter. But based on the Sharps and based on the projections we're looking at, uh, I think there is a reasonable chance that the Jaguars have a late lead in this game. Um, so maybe that adds a little bit to Fournette, but I think what you're saying makes sense regardless. So the next game here is going to be another interesting one to talk about. Uh, Steelers at Vikings. So here's the thing. like If Le'Veon Bell was priced cheaper for this game, that would be a spot that I really like him in because he put up what appeared to be just a huge dud in week one. The actual the pro football focus numbers kind of showed that overall he actually played well and it's just more to do with how they used him and just limited snaps and touches was the reason for the limited fantasy production. So I, I don't think that, like, I, I, this isn't the spot to use him just because all the values at cheaper running backs and Le'Veon Bell is just ridiculously expensive. But as a GPP play, like, uh, God, this is a tough one. What's, what's like, the Vegas information for this game, Matt? Based on what I'm looking at from Vegas, it looks like the Steelers' passing offense is really undervalued. I guess that sort of combines the Football Outsiders analysis. But the public loves the Vikings, 71% of spread bets, 76% of money line bets, 54% of the total bets are on the under, and uh, the line has moved. Steelers opened minus 6.5. They're now only minus 5.5. The total's dropped. Uh, no, the total's actually still at 45.5. So there's heavy Vikings bias. There's heavy under bias. And um, the Vikings are a much worse pass. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, based on DVOA, the Vikings are a much worse pass defense than run defense. I think they're probably an average or so defense overall. And after the Patriots' sort of poor showing in Week 1, the um, the Steelers now grade as the number one offense going forward. And uh, Roethlisberger and their entire receiving group, I mean, they had tons of big games last year. It seems like there's a lot of upside there, and I think they'll probably be fairly low-owned because the Vikings look so good in Week 1. Uh, so I think there's a lot of bias here going on Minnesota, and it could create some value on Pittsburgh. I'm not sure how you analyze that with Le'Veon Bell's high price tag. So actually, last year, Minnesota had the eighth-ranked defense in the NFL, and they were uh, so the eighth-ranked defense, 16th against the run and eighth against the pass. So they were they were overall just a solid defense, and they also are a team that plays at a pretty slow pace, so that just happens to limit the fantasy points of opposing offenses. So I think because of what the prices are for the Steelers' offense, it's not going to be a spot I have a lot of exposure to. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Even if they're undervalued, you just at a certain point they cost too much where it doesn't matter. And uh, the offense, the um, the defense split for the Vikings was just based on this year's numbers. So the sample size there is pretty small. Where uh, they defended the run a lot better in Week One than they defended the pass, but not really all that relevant. I think we probably would trust last year's stats more. And it's still like, I mean, this is a spot where usually I would love to play Le'Veon Bell, except for his price actually went up from Week One to Week Two. He has a tougher matchup in week two and week one. So just the pricing and the situation where the value is on the slate, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to roster him. But I mean, if you really want to get a levy on Bell at like under 10% ownership, which rarely ever happens, this would be the spot, but it's, it's not where I'm going this week. And then from the Vikings side of the game. So Sam Bradford looked really good in week one, and that shouldn't be what we expect from him as the norm. Like we've seen Sam Bradford as a quarterback in the NFL for a really long time now. And he's been, Nowhere near that good at any point in time in his career. With that said, I still think that uh, Stefan Diggs at 6,100 uh, makes sense as a wide receiver play just because he's going to get so many targets over the course of the season, and that's just a pretty cheap price for him. He was one of the better wide receivers in football last year, so he's the guy who I have the most interest from in this game. So the next game on the schedule is the team who the Le'Veon Bell and the Pittsburgh offense disappointed again, uh, against a little bit last week. And that is the Cleveland Browns playing at the Baltimore Ravens. I think there's going to be people who are pretty interested in the Ravens side of this game because of how bad the Browns were last year. But 
What's the Vegas data for this game, Matt? Uh, the line's moving pretty heavily in Baltimore's favor here, and there's not too much public bias. So 59% of the spread bets are on Baltimore. Not a ton for this big of a favorite. Usually you see uh, the team that's favored getting the majority of the bets anyway. So 59-41 is sort of like an even breakdown for the favorite uh, of pretty large spread game. And uh, the public likes the under here, which I think is probably just universally the case in games between teams in the AFC North, just based on the reputation of those organizations. Um, I don't think there's much sharp action here. I think the line is moving a little towards the Ravens just because they're the favorite and the public is on them a little bit. Um, maybe the Browns are a little overvalued, but I'm not seeing much here. Yeah, I'll be interested to see who ends up starting at running back for the Ravens because, uh, Danny Woodhead got injured at the start of that game. He got off to a good start in week one for the Ravens. And the rest of the game, uh, Buck Allen and West, they just split carries. So actually, if you look at uh, this, they split snaps. So Allen played 33 snaps. West played 27 snaps. So this looks like a real timeshare to me. And it depends which one of them ends up starting. Maybe I would lean towards one or the other. Allen's at 4,100. West is at 5,100. But looking at what the snap count was, I don't really have a ton of interest in either. I think there's going to be other cheap guys to target that are going to have more snap equity or are going to have more usage in the team's offense. So just because I think that, let's say West starts, I think he's going to be a very chalky play. If Allen starts, I think he's going to be a really chalky play. I would rather just use somebody else who I know is going to get the bulk of the touches and the bulk of the carries in their offense. And to me, that's neither one of those guys. I also think the Browns' defense is nowhere near as bad as people think they are to be. And I also just think this is going to be a low-paced, low-scoring game. I think both these teams play at slow paces, and that's going to limit the production in this game. I'm fine with fading this game and just hoping that neither of those running backs have big games. Do you have anything else to say about that one, Matt? No, I think that's pretty much it. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure how the carries are going to break down in Baltimore, but uh, as far as line movement and other insights, yeah, there's nothing else really going on here. So the next game we have here is the Bears at Buccaneers. What's going on in this one? So this is something I think I mentioned to Greg a few days ago, but there's actually some statistical basis for teams coming off bye weeks at home to outperform their expected, like what you would normally expect based on the quality of the team and their opponent. Uh, they outperform by about a point or two on average. It's pretty significant, but uh Calling it a bye week for Tampa Bay is definitely a bit of a stretch, if not entirely a stretch. But the line here anyway has moved from Bucks minus five and a half to Bucks minus seven, and the public betting is split right down the middle. It's almost exactly 50-50. So I don't really know what's going on here. 70% uh, of the bets are on the over, but the total hasn't moved at all. It remains at 43. I think that uh, Vegas just made a quick adjustment here because maybe they thought they mispriced the Bears after... Um, they played kind of well in week one, but I think they just happened to have a home game against a Falcons team that underperformed. And uh, it doesn't really say much about the Bears that they kept it close because the spread in that game was only six and a half anyway, and they lost by six. Uh, so any sort of public bias on the Bears, I think, just got wiped away pretty quickly. Um, but this also looks like a game where just most people aren't betting on it. It's a pretty boring game with not a ton of players to use outside of DFS. Uh, as far as like actually watching this game, I think it's not a primetime game. It's uh, two teams that are sort of okay, I guess. But I think that it's just just uh, my speculation is that most people just aren't betting on this game at all. So one of my favorite value plays on the slate is in this game. That's Jaquiz Rogers starting at running back for the Buccaneers. He had a couple of monster games last year. Doug Martin suspended for the first four games of the season and... Jaquiz Rogers at 4,400. I think he's going to get the bulk of the carries. I think he's going to get a ton of snaps. We saw a couple games last year. There was uh, one time where he had uh, 30 carries. There was another game where he had, I think, 26 or 28 carries when Doug Martin was suspended. So for that reason, I think Jaquiz Rogers at 4,400, like they have no problem just making him the bell cow running back and giving him a ton of touches. I prefer Rogers to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers passing game. So Evans is Mike Evans is one of my favorite receivers in the NFL, but they've added Deshaun Jackson to the team this year, so that could take some targets away from Evans. And the other thing also is the Bears play a cover six defense and have just been notoriously good at uh, limiting fantasy production from other teams' number one receivers. So for that reason, Mike Evans is going to be a fade for me in GPPs. I would rather use Deshaun Jackson in this spot as a wide receiver, but Jaquiz Rogers is my favorite player 
from the Buccaneers offense. And then from the Bears side of the game, like the Bears just have nobody left of receiver. So they were go we talked about last week how they were how they were down Cameron Meredith, they were down Marcus Wheaton, and then they uh Kevin White also got hurt in week Kendall Wright ended up seeing a lot of targets in the fourth quarter. We kind of got lucky with that because I rostered him a decent amount because he was 3,200, and he did nothing the entire game, wasn't even playing, and then ended up getting a bunch of targets towards the end of the fourth quarter and was able to hit value just because of that. He caught three catches on the last drive of the game. And now from their side, the other player who kind of came out of nowhere was Tariq Cohen. He was 0.2% owned and ended up being in the winning millionaire maker lineup. So... Cohen got a ton of looks in the offense. A lot of that was because White got hurt. Cohen at only 4100 this week after being priced min-price uh, for week one. And he got uh, six six carries and then was also targeted 12 times in the passing game. So that's a ridiculous amount of usage in the offense. I think him at 4100 makes a little bit of sense. Although I do expect him to have a lesser role in the offense this week than he had last week. One thing about the Falcons' offense is that they're one of the worst teams against pass-catching running backs in the NFL. So it's been a very common strategy for teams to attack them with running backs in the passing game. So I think Cohen is still going to get a lot of targets in the air, but I wouldn't expect him to have quite the same output he had in Week 1. But he still makes sense as a as just a cheap value play, 4,100. Cohen so seems like a pretty... That, um, yeah, let me just throw this in here because I think it was a yeah. point I mentioned you before we started, is that Cohen seems like a pretty boom-bust kind of pick for his price. Um Jordan Howard is limited in practice this week, and I think we agree he'll probably start. But given how um, how easily injured running backs are, there's so much randomness of that position. And if Howard's hurt, that definitely means more snaps for Cohen. Uh, so if he's getting carries, maybe he ends up with 10 to 15 carries if Cohen, if uh, Howard is limited or just out. And uh, then he's going to get the catches too, or at least the targets. So I think Howard's status is definitely something to monitor. But even if Howard is starting... His role could end up reduced because he's playing hurt. It could end up reduced because he's not playing well. Or uh, he could just get re-injured because he's a running back and that happens so frequently. So I think Cohen makes sense as a GPP play for the upside. But um, we don't really know how... Like, I would expect if Howard's healthy, he gets he's less involved than last week. But we really have no idea how this is going to play out. Yeah, I still... I think, I, I think Cohen makes a lot of sense as a GPP play. Also, just 4100 is a really cheap price. So if he does happen to get a few a few handoffs and then also catches four to five passes, like he's gonna have he's gonna hit value pretty easily. The next game on the slate is going to be one that people are gonna love to target the offense of. That is the Raiders at home against the Jets. The Raiders are massive favorites in the game. They're gonna be hugely popular because the Jets just suck this year. So what is the spread for this game, Matt, and is there any line movement in any direction? Yeah, this is a fun one. So I think that based on what Vegas says, I probably would recommend either lowering exposure or fading the Raiders. So the line opened at Oakland minus 13 and a half. It went all the way up to 15 because the public is obviously very anti-Jets and pro Raiders. That might be the biggest mismatch of public perception for the entire season. And uh, the line went up to 15, so it moved a point and a half. And then the sharp money bet it back down to 13 and a half. That's with 73% of the spread bets going on Oakland, and the money line bets are split, but that's not really relevant for a game with a two-touchdown spread. Most people are just betting on the spread anyway. Uh, well, almost everyone is, but uh, there's 71% of the bets are on the over, and the total for the game is only 43.5, and, and it hasn't moved. So it definitely is true that the Raiders should be responsible for more of the points than the Jets are. They'll probably win, and they'll probably win pretty handily, but 14 points is just too high of a number. And it's definitely skewed by the biases on both teams, the pro Raiders bias and the anti-Jets bias. And the Jets defense isn't that bad. I mean, I think we'll, we'd probably agree it's average at best, but it's not a catastrophically bad defense. And they actually didn't play terribly against the Bills. So maybe the Raiders will play really well, but at the very least, they're going to be over-owned and probably overvalued. Yeah, so here's one of the things also about Oakland. They're such big favorites in this game, and I expect them to be up by so much that I, like, are, I don't think they're going to be passing the ball at all in the fourth quarter. So, like, Carr with Cooper and Crabtree, like, yeah, it makes sense like to have some exposure to Carr and one of his receivers, but I just don't think they're going to be throwing the ball the whole game. So I think that that's going to limit their upside a little bit. And then from the running back situation, so I'm bringing up the numbers right now. 
Uh, Marshawn Lynch got more carries than anybody else, but still, if you look at his snap count, off the top, like I don't remember him playing a ton of snaps, and I'm just going to confirm that with the numbers, but my computer's being slow to load. Okay, right. so yeah. Yeah, yeah so week one, Marshawn Lynch played 32 snaps, Washington played 16, and then Richard played 14. So Marshawn Lynch only playing about half the snaps at running back, and him at six thousand, he's so dependent on scoring touchdowns because he's not gonna he's not gonna catch any passes. So I'm I'm not really high on Marshawn Lynch for this matchup either. He there's just other running backs who I think have more expected output that we've talked about so far. Like I like uh, I definitely like Christian McCaffrey more. I like Leonard Fournette more. I like Kareem Hunt more in the same price range. So I'm not gonna be super high on Oakland for this game. I think. Some shares of Carr with either Cooper or Crabtree makes sense, but I'm not going crazy here. Well, I sort of disagree with you that the game is going to be completely out of hand by the fourth quarter because like, I wouldn't think the Raiders should be expected to be up more than 10 to 14 points in the fourth quarter of the game. But I do agree with you, just the general principle, that if the Raiders have the ball up 10 points in the fourth quarter, they probably won't be passing very much because that's enough of a lead to play conservatively. So that's sort of the way I see the game playing out in most circumstances because the spread is at 14 and the Sharps are on the Jets. It's a pretty clear indication that the the Jets should be able to keep this closer than two touchdowns. And I think when we were looking at the projections from Pro Football Focus, they had the expected spread for this game around 10, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so Pro Football Focus currently has the Raiders' eight-point favorites. Okay. With, uh, so, 45 total points expected to be scored. Right, so maybe that doesn't fully account for injuries the Jets have or whatever, but... They're saying eight and the spread's 14. I mean, maybe split the difference. Uh, I think Football Outsiders, it was about 10 or 11. But anyway, yeah, this game shouldn't be a three-touchdown blowout. Like, that's that's an unlikely outcome that isn't completely unreasonable. I mean, maybe it'll happen one in every five times these teams play against each other in this sort of situation. Um, but the, the the line of 14 is too high. Like, I'm, I'm pretty adamant that, that that's what's going on. I think it's probably one of the worst like the the most mispriced spreads for week one. So I think the Jets should be able to keep this game close. Like if I had to pick a random number of what the score will be going into the fourth, I'd say it'll be something like 20 to 10 Raiders. And if they only score, let's say 24 or 27 points in the game, I mean, for how much people are going to use them and how much they spread around their offense, especially at running back, like you said, I don't really think it makes sense to use any of them at all. I mean, Derek Carr could have a really big game, but I just don't think it's a smart bet to really go with any Raiders players aside from cash games. Yeah, no, I just think uh, I think just because Cooper, Crabtree, I think that they both have touchdown potential. And then what's the pricing for these guys also? So the, the prices are cars at 7200 And then, yeah, I, I think those are really high prices for these guys, so... I'm not going to say I'm going to fade them because I don't want to commit to that, but I'm definitely going to be lighter on them than the, what the field is going to be because I think 8100 for Cooper, 7100 for Crabtree, 7200 for Carr. Those are really expensive price tags. Fair enough. Okay, so lighter on them than the field and possibly 0% is where, where we'll leave it at that for now. So the next game is the Dolphins at the Chargers. So the Dolphins, just like the Buccaneers, didn't play in week one. Game got moved because of the hurricane. So what is the Vegas line for this game, Matt? So uh, the public is split here, 52% to 48% on the Chargers for the spread. It's dropped from minus 5 to minus 4, 4.5, depending where you look. Uh, but I don't think there's a lot of action here. There's no sharp money. There's really nothing to look at yet. And uh, I guess it might be the same circumstance as Tampa, where people just haven't seen either of these teams play yet. So there's very little bias to talk about. Um, a lot of the week two biases come from seeing how the teams looked in week one and with the Bucks and with the Dolphins, you just don't have any, you don't have any anecdotal data to make any claims. So I think we're just seeing a low volume of bets here and there's really nothing to say about it as far as the Vegas lines. Yeah, this is a game I don't really have a ton of interest uh, in for DFS. The one spot that I do think makes a lot of sense is the Chargers defense is only 2,800 at home against the Dolphins. I think the Chargers are going to have an above-average defense this year. And then in addition, they're going up against Jay Cutler, who I don't think Jay Cutler is quite as bad as the general public makes him out to be. But the one thing Jay Cutler is definitely turnover-prone. So this is a really good spot for the Chargers defense. They're one of the cheapest defenses on the slate against a quarterback 
who's prone to throwing interceptions, prone to fumbling, prone to pick sixes. So I think the Chargers defense, I'll probably have more exposure to them than any other defense on the slate. Even though Jay Cutler might be undervalued by the public, you're definitely right that the way he plays is very high variance with trying to fit the ball into tight windows and throwing deep downfield and holding the ball too long, taking sacks. So even if he ends up with some big games this year because he's really talented, he also is going to have some duds because he's very turnover prone. And uh, I would worry about the Chargers' ownership for their defense, but we have this Cardinals-Colts game on the slate so I don't think it's going to be much of a concern because I think the Cardinals will take up so much ownership that you won't have to worry about what the um, what the masses are doing with the ownership of any other defense. So the next game on the slate is another one that I'm pretty sure I'm going to have no exposure to. That's the Broncos at home against the Cowboys. Just the Broncos offense, there's so many good offensive players, and then just Simeon is just such a shit quarterback that it really kills their offense a lot. They play really slow, and then running back, I, I think – just Jamal Charles, C.J. Anderson, I don't mind either of them, but that's another timeshare running back. So this is a situation to kind of avoid. And then just the Broncos' defense is so good that I don't want exposure to the Cowboys' offense. Is there any uh, sharp indicators for the Vegas line on this, map? Yeah, so it's on the Broncos, but it definitely projects to be a low-scoring game with a total at 42. Maybe the Broncos' offense is slightly undervalued, but it's it probably isn't enough to make them usable. And uh, I guess all that we're looking at here is um, – a complete fate of the Cowboys where some people might look at how they played offensively against the Giants and Ezekiel Elliott had a really good game. But I think uh, the biggest indicator here is that you should not be using the Cowboys offense, but I guess that was probably pretty obvious anyway. Yeah, this is, I'm just, I'm just off this game. So the next, the next one is going to be Washington at the Los Angeles Rams. Todd Gurley was one of my favorite plays in week one. He definitely came through from a fantasy perspective, but from a real life perspective, he was awful. He sucked. He had 19 carries for 40 yards. He happened to score a touchdown. He caught a couple passes, which made for a nice fantasy game at his price point. Uh, I am not nearly as high on Todd Gurley going forward for the rest of the year as I was going into week one. What is What does the Vegas line have to say about this game, Matt? Uh, it's moved a little bit in the Rams' direction. I think that, well, my guess is that it has to do with um, Aaron Donald. I think he's now probable for this game. So that's a boost for the Rams' defense. But other than that, I don't know. Like, I I think that these teams are probably both pretty bad. This is a game where I was just very confused about the line when I was asking you the other day, where I would think the Redskins are a much better team than the Rams, but the Rams played so well in Week 1. And this is, this is really hard for people to kind of intuit or eye test when they look at football scores or even just watch the entire game, even if you watched every play, is that you can sort of overlook what the Rams did because it came against the Colts, but winning 46 to nine, it, it's such an impact on the ratings of a team and football outsiders does value blowout scores and like blowout defensive plays. I mean, all the plays get valued less in the equation when the scores already that much of a blowout in the middle of the game. So once the Rams were up 27, nine or whatever, all the plays barely go into the formula from that point going forward, unless the Colts would have made the game closer. But even with all of that, the Rams ended up having the strongest uh, week one performance by a mile. Uh, their DVOA for the game was 99.6%, which is one of the higher DVOA games in recent history. I mean, they basically played perfectly. So the Rams look like a better team now after that game. And I guess maybe if you thought the Redskins were better than the Rams before the season, you can't really say that now. So I think maybe there is some sort of a sharp indication on the Rams because this line moved from minus two to minus three. Maybe it's just because Aaron Donald's playing. Uh, but I personally think of the Rams a lot differently than I did before week one. Yeah, I just I thought that Gurley was, could really have a bounce back here. And like I said, from a DFS perspective, it worked out in week one because he put up a lot of fantasy points relative to his price. But for him to score 19 uh, for him to only run for 40 yards on 19 carries against what was the worst run defense in the NFL last year, he just had all the opportunities to succeed, and that's just such a shitty result on a per-play efficiency basis. So I'm, I'm just off that game. There's nobody I'm going to roster. The next one on the slate, San Francisco, the San Francisco 49ers, still in baseball mode, almost at the Giants. The 49ers at the Seahawks, rivalry game here in division. See if Russell Wilson could look a little bit better this week. What is the line for this game, Matt? 
The line's 14, and I think this is a similar game to the Raiders-Jets game in some respects, but very different in other respects. Um, the the spread betting is just about the same thing. It's about 14. It actually opened at 13. The public bet it up. I think it was up to 14 and a half, and then the sharp money bet it back down to 14. So the sharps clearly like the, the 49ers. I think that we were talking about Russell Wilson maybe just being worse now for whatever reason. Maybe he's playing through injuries. Maybe he's just regressed. I don't know. Football is a sport where even the slightest injuries can really impact your performance. I don't know what's going on with Russell Wilson, but I'm not as high on him now as I was before the season. Um, it's it's kind of hard to say why it's changed, but the difference between this game and the Jets game is that the public actually is heavily towards the under here, whereas in the Jets game it was towards the over. And I think the um, the bias here is towards Seattle's defense. So I think I did say that Arizona is going to carry enough defensive ownership that it won't matter, but I think Seattle is going to carry a ton of defensive ownership too. They may be overvalued also. Uh, it's kind of hard to say, but it's very clear that the public loves Seattle's defense for this game. The totals drop from 43.5 to 42 with 76% of the bets on the under. Um, so that's what Vegas is seeing here. Public loves the Seahawks defense. If I had to pick a chalky defense to roster, though, for me it would be Seahawks over Cardinals. The Seahawks are, are at home, and the Seahawks have a better defense than the Cardinals do. So if if I'm going for a high price offense, I still think that the that the Seahawks defense makes more sense than the Cardinals. Would you agree that the Seahawks so, probably are going to have lower ownership than the Cardinals too? Even if it's fairly high, it'll probably be less. Yeah, I think so. And I, I just I just think that's a much better defense. They've been a top five defense in the league basically every year for I don't know five or six years in a row or something like that. So it's it, this is a good spot still for the Seahawks defense. I like them more than the Cardinals for a high priced option. And then, so Russell Wilson, last year, he was playing with a bad knee. He had this huge, bulky knee brace that he played with for a lot of the year, and it definitely limited his mobility. And so I just assumed this year that, okay, Russell Wilson has the knee brace off. He's fully healthy. He had the offseason arrest, and he's just going to come out this year and look really good. And he just didn't look good throwing the ball against a weak Packers defense in week one. But I still kind of view Russell Wilson in the same category that I view Cam Newton where in terms of they've had such fantasy-friendly games in the past and their ability to pick up yards on the ground, which adds to their fantasy point totals, that I'm going to give Russell Wilson another week. I'm going to go back to him again and hope that he looks better because I still think the upside's there. I haven't written him off yet. I don't have any interest in anybody on the 49ers offense. I don't like Carlos Hyde this week. I think he's going to be splitting carries with Breed as the year goes on. Uh, Pierre Garçon. He's going to be a target monster in the offense, but still just in this matchup, not for me. And then I think Russell Wilson with either Paul Richardson, Doug Baldwin. Uh, Richardson started last week. He's going to be their number two receiver. So he's still fairly cheap at looking up his price right now. Yeah, He's only 4,200. So Paul Richardson, 4,200 is going to be one of my cheap, my favorite cheap receivers to play. And then uh, Doug Baldwin makes a lot of sense paying up to pair with Russell Wilson also. So the last game for the Sunday main slate is going to be another one. Really good game to stack. Packers at Falcons. I assume that this probably is the second highest total behind the Patriots game. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, it's two points lower at 54, and there's not another game that's close. I don't think there's actually another game above 46. So it's eight points ahead of the third highest game. I think that's right. But either way, the public is on the Packers, and I think there's a bit of a bias against the Falcons offense after week one. Um, there's no real sharp indicator here, but it does seem like both offenses are slightly undervalued. There, you usually see a ton of betting on the over in games like this, primetime games between two offensive-minded teams, but you only have 62% of the bets going on the over, um, which is a lot for an average game, but it's very low for a Sunday night football game between a Packers team that throws a lot and a Falcons team that throws a lot. So I think we do have the public undervaluing these offenses a little bit. Neither defense is particularly good, but it does seem like the value would would appear to be on the Falcons a bit more than the Packers, though this probably would be one of the best game stacks to make. Is that the route you're going after the Patriots-Saints game, or do you think that this might even be a better spot than that one? No, I think this is even a better spot to stack because I think this is going to be I think this is a better chance to be a more competitive back-and-forth game because I think there's much more of a risk of a blowout in the Patriots game, which could limit the the offense a little bit in that game. And then also, it makes the Saints a little bit less viable as a stack because of that uh, blowout potential where they're scoring less points. I expect this game to be a lot, ev- a lot closer to be- being even. And then in addition to that, 
the Packers really only played four skill position players in week one. Ty Montgomery got almost all of the snaps at running back. And then at wide receiver, the only wide receivers who played were Nelson, uh, Adams, and Randall Cobb. So for that reason, it's really easy to stack the Packers. I think Jordy Nelson is a good play, but still a little bit too expensive. I prefer Cobb and Adams. I'll probably have more exposure to them. And then Ty Montgomery at only 5,800 is my favorite running back play on the slate. He's actually probably my favorite play overall on the slate. I think uh, Ty Montgomery and Jaquiz Rogers are going to be my most commonly used running back combination. And Montgomery might even end up in 100% of my lineups this weekend. I just like him that much. He was on the field a ton in week one. He got touches in the red zone. He scored a touchdown. He got pass attempts. He had catches. I mean, he's just 5,800 is way too cheap for him. Also, super favorable matchup. I love him. And then from the Falcons side of the game, I think Julio Jones, my favorite high-end wide receiver to use on the slate. I'll use a lot of him. I'm not going to have a ton of exposure to the Freeman-Coleman combination at running back just because I don't think either of them are terrible plays, except I don't want to try to pick which one of them are going to have the production. I think that there's just a lot other spots that I've pointed out where I think the production is a lot more obvious where it's going to be at running back. So Freeman-Coleman, I think one of them probably has a good game and the other one probably has a bad game, but it's hard to predict which one it's going to be. So Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, like that's definitely where I want my exposure to from the Falcon side of the game. I know that's not super original, <laughs> but with with that said, I, I just think it makes a lot of sense. Julio Jones is going to be my favorite player to pay up for this weekend. The only spot I disagree with you there is the blowout potential because I think the projected spread based on the sites that we look at for these two games is actually about even. I think both of the favorites should be about three and a half point favorites. Uh, the well, I'll just cut you off there for a second because Pro Football Focus has the Falcons as one and a half point favorites, but they have the Patriots as ten point favorites. Well, I wonder how much they're accounting for the High Tower injury, for the um, Amendola injury. Maybe the I, I don't know. Based on the lines though, and what the sharps are doing, uh, the the spreads both should be around three or four. So I don't know. I can check out what DVOA says real quick. They have the Patriots at. Yeah, only only a field goal favorite over the Saints, roughly, and then the Packers and Falcons. Uh, they would say, yeah, there's agreement there about one and a half or two points. The Falcons should be favored by. But even if even if the Patriots should win by more, I think ten is way too high of a number, especially considering the line six and a half and the public is having New England. There's just no way that Vegas underpriced the spread here with the expectation that so many people would be on New England and the Sharps being on New Orleans, like. If anything, that spread is is fair, and I would speculate that it's definitely too high. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that I like that game better. I actually like more of the... I think that the targets are more predictable for the Falcons and Packers, uh, at least a wide receiver, and uh, especially for the Packers at running back with Ty Montgomery. 100% exposure to him kind of makes sense, but uh, the reason to like that game more in my eyes isn't because of the blowout potential for new england because i don't think there's a ton of it because like we were talking about the patriots are pretty overvalued and uh i don't think it's too unoriginal to pick these two games because i think there will be a lot of chalkiness for the raiders so uh there may be a little bit suppressed ownership on both of these games with how much people are going to use the raiders offense yeah, so that's the last game on the slate uh something else that this is irrelevant to people at roster but it does make it fun where you have a lot of exposure to the last game on the slate and you kind of sit back and watch your players play and kind of know, like, okay, everything comes down to this one game, nationally televised game, everybody will be watching. So last game of the week, this isn't on the slate, but we just want to bring it up really quickly, is the Lions at the Giants. Uh, This is going to be a spot that if you were playing, like, those Thursday to Sunday contests or just playing the contests that run on, like, the Monday night, any games that include the Monday night game, I think this is a really good spot for the Giants offense should Odell Beckham play. The Giants were so bad in week one, and the consensus opinion is just that the Giants are total garbage, which I think is partially true. But having Beckham back is just a huge difference for the Giants offense, and I think stacking Eli Manning with Odell Beckham is going to make a ton of sense for the Giants in week one. The Detroit Lions had one of the worst passing defenses in football last year. They projected one of the worst passing defenses this year. And Odell Beckham, it doesn't really matter who the players are around him. Beckham at any point in time could catch just a five-yard slant pass and run it all the way for a touchdown. 
that's where almost all the Eli Manning's production comes from is just short dump passes to Beckham and he does everything afterwards. So Beckham to Eli combination, I think that, or Eli to Beckham combination, I think makes a lot of sense as a combination of play for any contest you play and that include the Giants-Lions game. The sharp money definitely backs this up too. Uh, the public is very anti-Giants this week as opposed to week one where the public was very pro-Giants. Uh, maybe it's because Beckham's status is up in the air. I think he's more likely to play than not, but um, I guess it doesn't really matter because if you're playing a slate, if you're playing a lineup on a slate where you, uh, you're you using the Giants at the end, and I guess it would either start Sunday morning or Thursday night even, uh, you could probably get a good indication of Beckham's status before Sunday night football and then just pivot off to either Packers or Falcons guys with your Eli Manning and Odell Beckham exposure. So it's not too much of a risk that Beckham might not play because uh, you can pull the plug on it either Sunday afternoon or Sunday night, and then uh, that's a game that we like anyway. So um, I, I definitely think it could be a really good spot for the Giants. Uh, given that it's the last game of the week, if you're on, if you're picking players for a slate that starts on Thursday and ends on Monday, I would think very few people are going to go with the Monday night game because there's a little bit of a bias for picking players earlier. Um, I think, Greg, you've mentioned this. When a slate starts on Thursday night, you always see higher than usual ownership on that Thursday game because people are impatient and they want to see their players play right away. Um, and then with Beckham's status up in the air, I think even less people will use him. So uh, it could make a lot of sense to use Giants players on slates where they actually are part of it. Uh, but yeah, like you said, this isn't part of the main slate. Just uh, I thought it was worth throwing in here because uh, there is some pretty substantial sharp action and... I think the public is really undervaluing the Giants this week. So that'll wrap up the Week 2 NFL podcast. Back to baseball tomorrow. You can follow me on Twitter, DFS, and Matt's Twitter handle is at PreachingSense. So hopefully Week 2 will be another big success, and we'll be back tomorrow.